I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites. Brothers and sisters, there are few expressions of Christian sorrow and anguish anywhere in our Bibles that rival this one. This morning I want us to attempt, if possible, to at least just a little bit try to enter into this realm of Paul's pity and compassion for those who are lost. Has it ever struck you? I mean, Paul, are you for real? I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers. Do you guys just read over that and let that go right, right by? A man made of the same stuff you and I are made of can look at lost people, a lot of them, and say, I'm not lying here. I'm telling you the truth in Christ. I could wish myself Cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my kinsmen, my brethren. What a statement. The best way I know that we can even begin to handle such a text is to just ask some questions about it. See if we can't answer them. So I want to pose three questions. So my sermon is today. Ask three questions. We'll try to answer them. First, is Paul's anguish even necessary? Look, that's not a useless question. Several weeks back, we started the campus ministry over at San Antonio College. The very first day, guy comes up. Well, actually, I was at the table. We had a number of us there. And I can hear this conversation taking place behind us. Some big guy came up back there. And, and a few of the folks that turned out to help us there at the table were back there talking to him. One of them was Jason. I heard the conversation. I went back there and I got involved with it. This guy was a Roman Catholic and he said to me, answer this. Are the Jews going to heaven? You know what my answer to him was? Those who trust Christ. Christ will. All the rest will be damned. You know what? The man was disgusted. He had a Paul Washer DVD in his hand that Jason had given him. He marched right over to the table and put it back down. But he didn't just walk away. He turned around and came back. He went at it again. He absolutely insisted that the Jewish nation as a whole would be saved. You know why I believe that? 
He kept coming back to this. God made a covenant with them. They are God's covenant people. They have promises. And God must save them. Irregardless of what they do with Christ. They have a covenant. And so, some other way than by Christ, they can get to heaven. They're a special people and they've got a special in with God and they've got a special way to get into the kingdom. I kept telling him, no one who denies the Son has the Father. No one. The Jews have rejected Christ. They've stumbled over the rock of offense. When you reject the Son, you reject the Father. I kept telling him this, but he kept coming back to the fact. Israel's God's covenant people. Therefore, no matter what else might be said of them, they're okay. And here's one thing. I'll tell you this. If that man was right, then Paul's anguish is all in vain. It's for nothing. Now listen to me. Before you just jump on this bandwagon against that guy, before we just brush him off, we need to realize something. God has made a covenant with Israel. Has He not? I'm not talking about the old covenant. You know the one where if you kept the law you lived, but nobody ever did, and so they all died? I'm not talking about that covenant. God made another covenant with them. You guys know what one I might mean? I'm talking about the new covenant. I think we have this notion. The old covenant was made with Israel. The new covenant, it's made with the world. Uh-uh. You misread Jeremiah if that's what you say. Let me ask you something. Who is this made to? Jeremiah 31, 31. Oh, how we love to go there and reference the new covenant. Let me tell you something. This is what it says. Behold, the days are coming declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with who? The world? With the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant. This is the old covenant. Not like that covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. That was the Old Covenant. That was the Mosaic Covenant. Ten Commandments and everything. He says it's not like that one. I'm making a new covenant. My covenant, that one, they broke. Though I was their husband, declares Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each one his brother saying, know the Lord for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. Now listen to this. For I might, if I decide, forgive their iniquity. I will. Forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Isn't that amazing? That's what he says about Israel. Listen to this from Isaiah's prophecy. Simply staggering. Isaiah 45, 17. Remember this verse. 
Israel is saved by the Lord with everlasting salvation. You, he's speaking of Israel, shall not be put to shame or confounded to all eternity. I read this verse two weeks ago to you. You guys see what that says? You shall not be put to shame or confounded to all eternity. I'm telling you this, folks. God has promised to save Israel with everlasting salvation. He's given covenant promise to the house of Israel that He will, not might, not maybe, He will, He will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. And I ask you again, is Paul's anguish for all his kinsmen according to the flesh even necessary? Is it necessary? If Israel is guaranteed everlasting salvation, then Paul, just cut it out. Relax. Quit all this dramatic talk about wishing to be accursed and cut off from Christ. You're way overreacting. These people are okay. After all, they're Jews. It's going to work out all right. So why all the excitement? Look, Paul says in Romans 9.4, I'm no idiot. Of course I know the promises and the covenants that God gave to Israel. That's what he says there. He recognizes it. He knows it. But the reality here is unmistakable. Despite all the promises, Paul is somehow convinced his fellow Jews are on their way to hell and under the judgment of God. Do you know why he believes that? Do you know how he can say that and believe that right in the face of all these wonderful promises that have been given to Israel? Because all these people, all these kinsmen according to his flesh, they are only a shadow. They aren't the real thing. They're not really Jews at all. That's exactly what he says in Romans 9.6. It is not as though the Word of God has failed. You see what he's saying? It's not like God gave them a promise that never came to pass. It hasn't failed. Yes, all these Israelites are perishing, but not because God hasn't been faithful to every single thing He ever said. This is the reason. Not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Did you get that? No one is a Jew. Just because they're one by blood. You can physically be a Jew without spiritually being a Jew. You can be descended from Israel. That's Jacob. You can be descended from him. By your bloodline, you can belong to ethnic Israel and all the while not belong to the true spiritual people of God who alone are truly entitled to the name Israel. That is exactly what Paul already said back in Romans 2. Look there. Romans 2.28 I want you to see this for yourselves. This is exactly what he said. Romans 
No one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. Nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. Did you guys get that? Look at verse 28 again. Hear this loud and clear. No one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. If you are a Jew outwardly only, then you are not a Jew at all. That's exactly what he's saying. He unjews the Jews if they're only one outwardly. When Paul talks about his kinsmen according to the flesh, these are exactly the kind of people he's talking about. People who are only Jews outwardly, meaning they aren't truly Jews at all, meaning they don't have any part in the New Covenant or in any of the promises made to God's people. Look, you've got all these crazy people running around. Some of you know some of them. They want to spend all this money to go over to Israel. See what? Jews? All they've got to do is come in here to fatties. That's the truth. We have a room full of Israelites right here. Folks, I'm serious. I'm speaking the truth. Look! Right here is the problem. If we don't see people for what they truly are, we will never be able to enter into the kind of anguish that Paul felt. So often the reason we are light in our compassion and we don't have this kind of anguish for people is because we are not really seeing them for who they are. So easy to imagine that people are not as doomed as the Bible says. Many of the Jews, think about them. They were outwardly moral. You got the rich young ruler, the guy, he was a pretty good guy. These folks sought to keep the law of God. They thought they were okay. They identified themselves with patriarchs like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and David and Daniel. They toted around their Old Testaments. They didn't necessarily look like bad people. No doubt some of them had a good sense of humor. They were pleasant to be around. They were just nice people. But there was always, always, always only one issue with Paul. It's Christ. It's always Christ. Do they know Christ? He emphasizes this all through this section of Romans. Romans 9, 10, and 11. It's all about the demise of the Jews and that God's Word has not failed. And Paul keeps bringing us back. Romans 9, 33, 10, 4, 10, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 11, 20, 11, 23, 11, 26, 11, 27. This whole section of Romans again and again and again and again. Paul keeps coming back to this. Faith in Christ. That's Always the issue. Folks, do you not realize the new covenant is for true 
Jews. And Christ Himself said, this is the blood of the new covenant shed for you. That covenant was only sealed by the blood of Jesus Christ. And only by faith right there, folks. You see, when Paul saw the sweet little old Jewish grandmother hobbling to the synagogue, his heart broke despite all of her apparent niceness and politeness and willingness to make cookies for the grandkids, Paul saw through her to what she really was. Separated from Christ. That's all that mattered. She was cut off, destitute, no hope, under wrath, headed for outer darkness, total shame. Folks, that's how we've got to see people. I know your grandmother might be nice to you, but if she has not Christ, if she's a little old, nice old Catholic lady, she's going to hell. No Christ. You're picking on Catholics. I tell you this, you worship Mary, you're going to be damned in the end. You make any way to God through your works, you're going to be damned in the end. And we've got to see people for what they are, except people rest fully and entirely upon the finished, completed work of Jesus Christ, they're separated. This describes the condition of our children. Our, many of our parents, our grandparents, our aunts, our uncles, your schoolmates, your co-workers, the people you see driving down the street or walking by this Sidewalk out here. You've got to see them for what they are. They are sliding, slipping down this slippery slope into the pit of... Depart from me. You've got to see them for what they are. Look in their faces and see the horror that will be upon them when they find themselves naked in the very presence of the judge himself on that day. See them as the horror takes them as the angels cast them into the lake of fire. This is reality. This isn't fiction. I'm not making up some story. This is reality. The Bible warns us about this. It doesn't matter, folks. It doesn't matter if people are Republicans or Democrats or pro-life, pro-abortion, whether they're the cop or they're the robber. Folks, it doesn't matter the color of their skin. You've got to see people for what they are. And Paul had this kind of anguish because he saw them for what they were. No matter what they claimed to be, he saw them for what they really were. Do you think Paul's anguish was an overreaction? God forbid. Here's a second question for you. How can Paul have this kind of anguish when he believes in election? You know what? In verse 11, Paul tells us he believes in election. Romans 9.11 Now wait! Haven't we always been 
sold this bill of goods that believing the doctrine of election and believing in predestination kills a passion for souls. Haven't we been told that? I have. Doesn't it stifle prayer? I've been told that too. But what do we find here in Romans 9? The same Paul who shocks us with the words of Romans 9.18. You might want to look at them because they are pretty shocking to a lot of people. God has mercy on whomever He wills. Did you know that? He shows mercy. He saves whomever He wills. And He hardens whomever He wills. No, God does not harden. Wait, I'm just reading Scripture to you. That's what the Bible says. God does harden whomever He wills. Remember, the Paul that says this, it's the same Paul who is wishing himself accursed from Christ for the sake of his kinsmen. The same people who are objects of God's hardening. Brethren, do you know what's amazing about all this? Right in the one chapter. Think with me, folks. Many of you up-and-coming Calvinists, you love the doctrines of grace. But hold on. I want you to think about this first. Right in the one chapter in our New Testaments, that seems maybe above all other chapters in our New Testaments to emphasize that God saves whomever He wills. The chapter that overflows with the teaching that God is absolutely sovereign over who is chosen and who is hardened. One of the favorite portions of Scriptures that proves that God rules over the free will of men. The chapter that gives the clearest explanations of election in our entire Bible. And you know what? It's introduced to us by the most pathetic, affecting, mournful, moving words of compassion I believe ever uttered by Paul in any of his letters. Have you ever noticed that? It would do us well to remember that fact. Look, I recommend to all of you that any time you feel this compulsion to run over to Romans chapter 9 and dive in like at verse 11 or verse 16 or verse 18 to prove how sovereign God is or to prove your doctrine of election, to prove that He chooses whom He will, He has vessels of wrath and vessels of mercy, or to prove that He loves some and hates some, or that He has mercy on some and hardens others, just remember the heart with which Paul writes this chapter. Don't go to verse 11 and verse 18 first. Go to verses 1-3 through first. Look at the heart and the sorrow of those verses before you get all radical and bent out of shape with the rest of it. You see, folks, the common perception among many is that if you believe in election and that God is totally in control of who is saved and who is not saved, that you know what that does? That somehow makes God indifferent to men. And not only does it make Him indifferent, it makes us who believe it and teach it likewise indifferent to the plight of men. Folks, Imagine 
that somehow this makes God into a cruel and unfeeling being. And it's believed that the Christians that come along behind Him turn out to be the same way. Cruel, unfeeling. It's simply not true. And this chapter proves it. You know what? As I, as I looked at this chapter, I thought, it's as though God said to us, look, I'm going to give you Romans chapter 9. But if you're going to delve into my deep mysteries and my eternal decrees, let me show you the kind of heart you better have as you go into these things. That you rightly might understand and comprehend these things. Because I'll tell you this, there are a lot of people who go into these and they don't come out with right assessments of God. And I'm talking people who may be in the same kind of theological camp we're in. You know what? It's as though God says to us, don't you dare lay your cold, hard, unfeeling, hyper-Calvinistic hand on these verses until you have a heart wrenched with pity and sorrow for the lost. Brethren, let's be honest here. We know that this proves that you don't have to be cold and heartless to believe these things. But what do we see today? Where are the election-believing, sovereignty-loving men and women who are torn with tears? and anguish, and sorrow, and prayers, and a willingness to suffer great personal loss for the sake of others. You answer me this. Where are the Sovereign Grace churches? Where are the Reformed Baptist churches that are weeping? We talked about it the other day. You go into churches and what do you find? The prayer meetings are what? Laundry lists of physical ailments. What's happened to the churches that are weeping, and are torn, and are... look? I'll tell you this, if you've got a heart like Paul and you're willing to sacrifice your own soul, if it were possible, what would you hold back for the sake of the lost? Didn't he say, I'm willing to become all things to all men that I might win some. You know what? He was willing to lay down his luxuries and his comfort and his nice life for the sake of the lost. If you're willing to be a curse, you're willing to do those lesser things. Where are the churches like that? Where are the Reformed churches that are growing largely by conversion? By the miracle of the new birth? Where are they? You look around this country, folks. Where are they? You know what's happened? We bought into a system of theology without having the heart that God would have us to hold that system. Because I'll guarantee you this, where people desperately weep for souls, they're going to see them saved. It's true. Show me the church. Show me the Christians that are weeping. Show me the ones that are willing with such anguish to give themselves to the pursuit of the lost. And I'll show you places where they're seeing conversions. I guarantee it, folks. They may have to wait seasons. There may be seasons come and go, but they will see conversions and they'll see the fruit of that. 
Folks, rather, brethren, is there not apathy? Isn't it true that most of the churches that see and understand the doctrines of grace from their Bibles, they're fond of arguing the five points? If you stick your head in the prayer meetings, there's nobody with any passion crying out for souls. My mom hurt her knee. Had to take the dog to the vet. Got a sore throat. You know it. And you know the tendency for our own prayer meetings in this very place to become just like that. Rather than on our faces with tears flowing and saying, God, save them, save them. Pleading. Paul's understanding of God's sovereignty clearly did not abate his concern for their souls. In Romans 10.1, he's saying, my desire. What, Paul, your desire? You know about election? You know God's hardened them? What is your desire? That they be damned? Isn't that according to God's decrees? He says, no. My desire and prayer for them is that they might be saved. Paul, isn't that backwards? Aren't you contrary to God there? If God's will is to harden some, what are you doing praying for them? Aren't you contrary to God's purposes? Paul didn't seem to think so. Look, if our theology does not lead us to this burden, then our theology does not serve us well. If you're a burdenless Calvinist, then you're Theology has taken you somewhere it never took Paul. Paul's great truths of foreknowledge and predestination and calling, election, sovereignty, never brought him to the place of indifference or carelessness when it came to the souls of men. Look! You, Christian, do we not love to quote Romans 1, 16, 17? Don't we love to say that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation? Don't we love to say that? Don't we love to quote that? What must be true of us if we say that? And then don't tell anybody about this message of power? You know what? One of two things is true. If you say that, and don't take that message to people. Either one, you are a liar. And you don't believe it at all. Or two, you know what? You're a cruel, self-absorbed monster. You know the cure for man's deadly disease, but aren't willing to disrupt your sheltered little life to go tell anyone. Look, that's true. If you believe, if you say that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, but your mouth is quiet, you are one of two things, and neither of them are good. Brethren, 
we must not abandon the heart of Romans 9. Yes, we need its doctrine, but we need its heart as well. Where is the spirit that gripped the election-loving Spurgeon? I know some of you know this quote. He taught the doctrines of grace. He believed in a sovereign God. But look at his heart. If sinners will be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, at least let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions. And let not one go there unwarned and unprayed for. Paul didn't become some cold, iron-hearted, hyper-Calvinist saying, well, if these Jews aren't elects, just let them be damned. He does just the opposite. Just the opposite. He wished, if possible, he himself might be damned for their sake. A big difference between them, folks. How can Paul have this kind of anguish when he believes in election? Very simply, the two are not opposed to each other. They've never been at odds with each other. Now I just finish and I ask one more question. Where does Paul's burden come from? Don't you want to know that? Don't you feel that you yourself need to find out what treasure house that came out of? Because maybe you might like to go there yourself and get some. And can you all honestly say that this is where you're at? Where you could wish yourself, if possible, to be accursed for those who are lost? Do you guys have anguish? I mean, I believe that there are probably some in here that have not had any anguish to speak of over the lost. There hasn't been any pain in your hearts. There hasn't been any sorrow. You have not shed a tear in a long time. We almost have to ask ourselves, is Paul even for real? I mean, this having a burden for the lost, yes, we understand that. But being gripped by such anguish that we could wish ourselves accursed and cut off from Christ, it's no wonder Paul had to say what he says in verse 1. That he's speaking the truth in Christ. He's not lying. Because this is almost too much to believe. Look, I want some of this. I want this heart. I want his passions. So I want to know where he gets it from. I want to go there. Look. Follow this. You see the first verse? He says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I lie not. Think about that. What he's saying is truth. Not only truth, it's truth in Christ. What do you think tagging that on there says? Truth in Christ. It's truth that's according to Christ. It's according to who He is. It's, it's in line with the character of Christ. It's coming from the heart of one who is in Christ. It's coming from the heart of one who being in Christ is being influenced by Christ.
That's where this is coming from. You know what? It's not as though Paul said, man, I've got all this anguish over these Jews because they're not saved. It's not like he said, you know what? I know I know that God has hardened them. I know that He has cast them off. But I'm not happy with God's will in this matter. And so I'm just going to rebel against that. I'm going to seek to have them come to Christ even though that's not according to God's decree. That's not where Paul's heart is. His heart is in line with Christ. With truth that's according to Christ. With truth that's according to the Gospel. He is bearing the very heart of Christ in this. Look, Christ Himself came along and He looks out over the city of Jerusalem. And He says, I would that you would have come to me. Do you know what? He says, now these things are hidden from your eyes. Did he say, good, you got your just dessert, I would that you were all damned. You know how that text starts out in Luke 19? It says he wept. He wept. Christ himself looked at his rejectors, a whole city of them, and it broke his heart. To see what we see in Paul is to see the heart of Christ. You know, in, in the life of Sharnak, a man describes Christ. This, there's a book, The Life of Sharnak. And in there, there's related to us what one man envisions Christ saying to His disciples as He gave the Great Commission. Listen to how Christ is portrayed. He's giving them the Great Commission. And He says, you are to go forth and preach repentance and remission of sins unto all the nations. But you know what He says? Beginning at Jerusalem. Let me ask you something. When was the commission given? When did He tell His disciples to go forth and to preach repentance and remission of sins? At what point? Was it not right before He ascended? What had already happened to Him? The Jews had shouted out, Crucify Him! Crucify Him! He'd already hung on that cross. And you know what He says? He doesn't come along to His disciples and say, now, I want you to take this Gospel to the whole world and bypass Jerusalem. Bypass Judah. Bypass these wicked Israelites. You know what he says? He's got the same tears in his eyes. He says, preach repentance and remission of sins. And begin at Jerusalem. This writer portrays it this way. Go into all the nations and offer this salvation as you go. But lest the poor house of Israel should think themselves abandoned to despair. The seed of Abraham, my ancient friend, 
as cruel and as unkind as they have been, go make them the first offer of grace. Let them that struck the rock drink first of its refreshing streams. Let them that drew My blood be welcome to its healing virtue. Tell them that as I was sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, so if they will be gathered, I will be their shepherd still. Though they despise My tears which I shed over them, and though they would have My blood to be upon them and their offspring, tell them twas for their sakes I shed them both that by my tears I might soften their hearts toward God. By my blood, I might reconcile God to them. Tell them you have seen the prints of the nails upon my hands and feet and the wounds of the spear in my side. And that those marks of their cruelty are so far from giving me vindictive thoughts that if they will but repent, Every wound they have given me speaks in their behalf, pleads with the Father for the remission of their sins, and enables me to bestow it. Nay, if you meet that poor wretch that thrust that spear into my side, tell him there's another way, a better way of coming at my heart, if he will repent and look upon me whom he has pierced, and will mourn. I will cherish him in the very bosom he's wounded. He shall find the blood he shed, an ample atonement for his sin of shedding it, and tell him from me. He will put me to more pain and displeasure by refusing this free offer of my blood than he ever did when he first drew it forth. I'll tell you this. This is only somebody's imagination of what Jesus might have said. But is it not exactly consistent with the Christ of Scriptures who weeps over His rejectors? Look, I'm just about done here. But let me tell you something. Men, I have no use at all for this approach to Scripture that sees Christ weeping over Jerusalem and attributes it somehow to some human weakness in Him. I'm telling you this. He told His disciples, when you've seen Me, you've seen the Father. He is the express image, the radiance of the very Father. Do you know something? So often we come to our Bibles and we treat it as a theological textbook. Folks, this is the revelation of God. You come to Romans 9. God reveals His sovereignty. Not to make you unconcerned about men. You know why He tells us about His sovereignty? So that we know we have nothing to glory in in ourselves when we're saved. He didn't give us this doctrine to harden us. Do you know something? The heart of Paul is the heart of Christ. And the heart of Christ is the heart of the Father. 
Who sent the Son to shed His blood? Was it not the Father? You see, we love to come to the Scriptures and we love to begin to twist and tug and exegete so that what we've got Christ doing is weeping over Jerusalem because He's weak rather than because He's the expressed image of His Father. You know what? God looked at Ephraim. This is God speaking. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? Hosea 11.8 How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. This is the same God who we're told does not willingly afflict or grieve the children of men. Have you never read Ezekiel 33.11? As I live, declares the Lord, God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. You know what? Is God not set forth in our Bibles as He who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth? Is that not 1 Timothy 2 and verse 4? And I'll tell you what, we love to undo those texts. Spurgeon looked at the hyper-Calvinist John Gill and said, it's just amazing the guy in the end ends up saying exactly the opposite of what the text itself says. Why? To defend some kind of theological system. But you know what? The question comes up, well, wait a second. If God is so sovereign, if Christ has the ability to impart life, how can Christ be sincere? How can the Father be sincere with all these admonitions and pleadings and tears when they're able to do exactly counter to the thing they seem to be impotent to pull off? You see what I'm saying? If, if Christ is weeping over a city that He had the power to save, then doesn't something seem to be amiss in all this? How do you reconcile these? How can their desires be legitimate when it seems incompatible to their secret decrees? How can Christ weep when He has the very power to save the people He weeps for? I'll give you my answer. I don't know. And you know what? Paul doesn't feel that he has to explain that. Look, this is what I can tell you. What's revealed in Scripture is that God is absolutely sovereign over who is saved. What is also revealed is that God doesn't take pleasure in the death of the wicked. It does teach us that Christ wept over the rejection of those who put Him to death. But it also says in Him is life. And He can give it to whomever He wills. We also know for certain that if you'll repent of your sins and trust Jesus Christ, trust that He's died for you, we know for certain Christ promises to save you. These are true. I can't work them all out. 
but they're true. Look, you want to know where Paul got that heart from? He got it from Christ. And you know what Paul says? How do you get from Christ what He has? What He has in His character? What He has in His heart? What He has in His attitudes? What He has as a man? The God-man. How do I draw His character out of Him and get it upon myself? Paul tells us. 2 Corinthians 3.18, he tells us. He says, with no veil on our face, we behold the glory of the Lord. And as we look at Christ, that glory by the Spirit of God is infused to us and in us and imprinted and implanted in our very being from one degree of glory to another. How do you become like Him? You get on your knees and prayerfully see Christ in this book loving sinners. That's where Paul got it. That's where it came from. You think it was his by nature? He was putting Christians to death. He didn't care about people when he was lost. This heart came to him after he was saved. He got it from Christ. He got it from the power of the Spirit working and implanting that very image of the Lord of glory upon his own heart. That's where you're going to get it as well. Brethren, we're going to look at amazing doctrines in Romans 9. But if you don't have the right heart, if you don't have the heart of tears and anguish and sorrow for sinners as you look at these verses, then you're going to end up somewhere where God never meant you by these truths to end up. Do you see that? You've got to have that heart to handle the doctrine of election or you're going to go off into some error. May God give us to be a church sold out to these truths, but full of this heart. May He do it for Christ's sake.